We are in part 23 of Revelation, and I entitled today's message, Safe in His Arms. I put safe in quotes. Why? Because it's relative safety. God does not keep you safe like you want. God keeps you safe the way you need. When I say it's relative safety, I mean that when it matters on the eternal, on the real, if you are a child of God, you could never be more secure and safe in the arms of God. Now, when I say relatively safe, I mean that in eternity it's locked. Here, it's chaotic. For reasons that I don't have time to get into in this message, it must be so. This is a dangerous place, and you will cry out and make all sorts of assumptions about God, about whether or not He rescues you here in this place from discomfort, trouble, pain, abuse, what have you. You need to be very careful when you do that, because you might be making an improper judgment. Down here in this life, we see preparation and education. But the way that the Bible views this relatively short life in light of eternity is it says this life is like a vapor. It's gone like that. While we are here, God is showing us things. He's transforming us. He's making us into the image of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't do it the way you want it. You say, I cried out to you when I was young. Where were you? I was suffering. I was hurting. You have not rescued me. You are not safe. I'm not safe. I keep asking you to solve this. I've involved you in the storyline of my life. And you have not responded in a matter that I want. And I would suggest to you that no, of course he has not. Nor will he sign off on the storyline that you are creating. We cannot feed God his parts on, now God, you do this. Now God, you say this. He's not going to read that script. He knows what's important. He has secured you for the long peace. But down here, bad things happen to good people. Scary things happen. When God says He's safe, He's safe. When God says He's good, He's good. You must believe that. We open up Revelation and we go, no, He's not. He's scary. I mean, he's crazy. There's this, there's this just bloodthirsty attitude. There's plagues and violent uprisings and there's torment and there's sulfur and fire and brimstone and, and, and I don't know what to do with him. Let me give you an analogy that may help you understand. How many of you are familiar, just by a show of hands, with MMA, Mixed martial arts. Anybody familiar with that? All right. So a decent amount of you. For the rest of you, let me catch you up to speed. There is a sport that is skyrocketing in popularity, and it's called mixed martial arts. Basically, what it is is boxing and kickboxing without gloves. You normally either have what's called a ring, more commonly called a cage, 
Sometimes it's a literal cage or an octagon. And the idea is that you step in and it's modern day gladiators where you go blow to blow with someone else. There are no gloves. There's just something that may well protect your knuckles. But other than that, you're going head to head. It's wrestling on the ground. It's standing up and striking. It is a bloody sport. There's tons of rules to make sure no one is permanently injured. And they've tried to keep it as safe as possible. But make no mistake, this is a severe battle. Men do it. Women do it. They have both classes. Now, the point is to bring your opponent to submission, which means they tap out. They have to tap the mat to say, I'm out. And then the referee breaks them up. And they will always do so and let each other and they treat each other with respect. There's a lot of handshaking and things like that. But it's rough. If you ever see a match, you will be extremely uncomfortable. It is the same idea of watching a fight on the street. Because you go, wow, they're really hitting each other. And there's blood everywhere. It's like, oh my gosh, this is, this is hardcore stuff. When you see those men and women go at it, you're going to make assumptions about what they're like. Oh, they're, I, can't, I would never want to meet them in a dark alley. And oh, they're just, they're brutal, they're vicious, they're, they're horribly violent people. Then you meet them outside the ring. There's a gentleman here in our church that uh, runs a couple different nutrition stores. I was talking with one of his managers, and they do a tremendous amount of business with MMA fighters. She expressed to me that all the ones she's had contact with in Northern California were gentle, quiet, peaceful, sweet gentlemen. She said, it's really striking. It's amazing. That these guys come in and they're so gentle in their demeanor. You would never imagine it. Okay, now, now that I've isolated almost all the women, <laughs> let me tie you in with an analogy that I think that you'll understand immediately. Mama bear. Bears look cute, right? Especially from a distance. They're cuddly, they are soft. However, I dare you to touch their cubs. Mama bear will rip your throat out. Yeah? All right. I think we're seeing the same point of view. If you only see when animals attack, right? The movies and the shows on TV. If you only saw a mother bear whose children are being threatened, you're going to make certain assumptions about what bears are. But is that the majority of her life? No, it's not. You're seeing one snippet of time in a very hot, violent, panicky place. You cannot make a judgment about their demeanor, their character, by looking at this one thing. If you see a cage match, you cannot make a, 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 any type of understanding. You can't make any type of record in your mind of what type of guy this might be at home. How is he with his kids? How is he with his wife? You don't know any of that stuff. By looking at him in the middle of a fight. When you open up the book of Revelation and you see the greatest battle going on. You see him go head to head. Gloves are off. God is fighting back. Satan in a panicked attempt to try to control the world is no holds barred. Go at with everything you have. 
There will be blood. There will be gore. There will be craziness. But be very careful that you're not making an assumption on God's nature when you see him in a fight. I believe that there's a tension that exists for perhaps every father. And I think perhaps for our heavenly father, which is this. How do you reveal to your children that you are strong, powerful, worthy of respect without scaring the living daylights out of them? How do you show to them that if anyone ever touches them, that you can become extremely aggressive without them fearing you? How does God do it? Right? Because is God ferocious? Yeah, he is. But how much can he show you without you now fearing him as a child? How much can he demonstrate in scripture about how big and powerful and mighty he is without you going, I'm just scared to death of the guy. That's why I want to go to heaven. (laughs) Right? There's a tension there. So the Bible ends up being packed with a series of stories about, and one angel slew 145,000 in one night, right? There's stories like that. Then there's stories where Jesus kneels down and he says to the kids, hey, what's your name? Same guy. Do you see what I'm saying? When you're in danger, you want a ferocious protector, do you not? The fill in the blank in front of you is this. As scary as the enemy seems, you always want to be on God's side. As scary as the enemy seems, you always want to be on God's side. We will see more of the warrior side of God in the book of Revelation as we move through the following chapters. You will see him in his vengeance stance. You will see him go blow to blow. You will see him annihilate. William Barclay had a quote that's on the top of your page. I'd like to share it with you because we tend to submit or surrender or fall into temptation because the enemy always seems like the big bad guy, the bully. So we tend to compromise. Consider this quote. There is a time when to avoid trouble is to store up trouble. And when to seek for a lazy and a cowardly peace is to court a still greater danger. You believe that? What I'm going to do today is provide you an opportunity at the end of the service to stand for God. What do you mean? Well, I'll make it very obvious so you don't think that in some way I'm manipulating you. I will literally ask you to stand to demonstrate to yourself or perhaps in your heart to the Lord that you are on God's side. Joshua, when they were in the desert, took Israel out and he said, choose this day whom you will serve. Do you remember that? He said, you want to serve God? Let's go this way. You want to serve somebody else? Let's go this way. But can we make a choice, please? I'm going to ask you what side you're on, because you're going to see the two sides collide today. 
you will see a bit of a cage match begin today. And I want to know what side you're on. I think you want to know what side you're on. Because it's really, really important. Jesus Christ is about to draw a line in the sand and the line does not waver. It's straight down the middle. So where will you remain? Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 14? Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. It's page 874 in the Bible's handed to you. 874. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. If you remember, we just finished last week about reading how big bad the enemy is. Right? We did the whole big red dragon, Satan guy, then we did the Antichrist, and then the false prophet, and he can do miracles, and there's the mark of the beast, and he, wants, he forces everyone to get on their right hand or forehead, or he'll kill them, and you look and go, oh my gosh, the, the bad guys are scary. What are they, are they gonna win? Are they gonna dominate the earth? How's it all gonna work out? You're about to see the pushback on that. It'll be a little bit rough. You ready to go? Let's do it. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 through 13 is all we're going to study today. So let me just read through it and then we can tear it apart. John writing says, Then I looked and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great, which made the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which he has poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, said the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are so magnificent and so other that we just don't get it. When we see these clashes, when we see this ferocity, we get a little nervous in the process of feeling like we're caught between two kingdoms, and indeed we are. 
Lord, I pray that you would allow us to understand what it is to be safe in your arms. That today we have resounding peace for we know where we stand. If you are for us, who can be against us? God, give us courage. Give us insight. Give us understanding of your will. Show us more of you that we might love you more. Show us how to look at people the way you do so we would love them more. And Father, help us to be transformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so what do we got? John says, then I looked, and there before me was a lamb. Now it's the lamb, the same lamb that we studied back in chapter 5. You remember the scene, right? He goes into the throne room. John gets to see it. There's the elders around the throne. There's this, all this shining glory. And, and then there was a lamb as if it had been slain standing before the throne. And we know that the lamb stands for Jesus Christ. So now we have Jesus Christ showing himself once again to be a lamb. Why a lamb and not a lion? Is he not the lion of the tribe of Judah? Is he not the ferocious commander of the army of God? Is he not mighty? Then why would you show up in a victory stance like a lamb? You show up as a lamb because you're trying to make a point. What's your point? He didn't win by military victory he won by obedience and submitting to the father's will and doing exactly what he set out to do he won by dying and that is a sign for all of us but he's standing up there in a victory stance but he's not alone he's standing what it says is he's standing on mount zion mount zion where in the world is that He's standing on Mount Zion, he's not alone, and with him, 144,000, meaning people, who had his name, Jesus Christ, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. What's that mean? What? Worship, security, ownership, however you want to play it, right? So now he's got his his team with him, a crew of people. Who are the 144,000? Well, we've studied them a couple weeks ago, and so you can go back and maybe listen to that message if you missed it, but from my personal view... I look where it says the Bible, in the Bible it says there was 12,000 from every tribe, so there's 12 tribes, that's where you get the 144,000. I personally, and you can disagree with me, there's brilliant views on other sides, but I personally believe that the 144,000 are a sampling of Israelites, Jews, that are Messianic, they believe Jesus to be Yeshua Messiah, that they are witnesses testimonies to lead the world once again in a revival to Jesus Christ, that they would lead their people back to the true Messiah. I believe that they're kind of a core evangelist team of Jews that operate out in the end times. Now, you may disagree with that. I understand that. That's just my particular view. But he's standing up with his team and they're all standing on Mount Zion. So we got a question. Is it in heaven or is it on earth? You go, what do you mean? Well, seems to be on earth. John is about to go, then I heard a voice from heaven, so he's obviously standing on earth. It sounds like an earthly thing. Where's Mount Zion? It's in Jerusalem. Okay. But then Hebrews chapter 12, Revelation chapter 21, says that the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, is called Mount Zion. So is it heavenly 
Are we looking like way future in the end when everything's done? John gets a shot of now in heaven. Jesus is standing victoriously in heaven with these guys. Or is this an earthly kingdom where literally Jesus Christ would return to earth, set up a kingdom in Jerusalem on the literal Mount Zion and begin to rule for a thousand years? Is that what it means? Okay. If it's earthly, let me help you out a little bit on this. Let's get a little bit of history in here. The region where Jerusalem is settled is ancient. It goes way back. By the time Abraham was around, about 3000 BC, it was already a settled place. Everybody wanted to hang out. It was a very central location and it was a beautifully defended location. It stands up on a mountain with three sheer cliffs on either side so you can easily defend it. And people were constantly fighting over it. This guys would take it over and then these guys. Well, after Abraham, they went through the whole Moses thing where they separated out all the tribes and Moses is organizing it. And well, this area ended up landing between two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. It's a very strategic location. So Benjamin and Judah were supposed to keep the territory, but they kept losing it. So they would lose it to a group called the Jebusites. And they, when they set it up, they called the place Jebus. So, 1000 BC, 2000 years after Abraham, King David takes a throne. He marches in there and takes over the location, says, love this place, I'm going to call it the city of David, I'm going to call it Zion, and I'm setting up my shop. So he founds the area that is Jerusalem for his people. Now, while he's there, he ends up making some stupid decisions and some bad things. One of them is he ends up taking a census of his people. God gets really mad, inflicts a plague on the people, and he wants to do something about it. So he wants to go buy a location where he can build an altar to the Lord. So he goes to search for a very special location. He, a lot of scholars think that he was searching for the location where Abraham would have laid Isaac on the altar. So there's all this argument about, is, is that where the spot is? Regardless, he buys a threshing floor from a guy named Aruna. Walks up to him, hey, I need this place. I got to build an altar to God. He said, well, you can have it. And David says something powerful. He said, I will not give to the Lord something that costs me nothing. I'll pay you full price. He said, all right. He buys it, sets up an altar to God. And it is on that very location that his son Solomon built the grand temple. So what we now know in Jerusalem as the Temple Mount, which of course the temple's been torn down, now we have the Dome on the Rock up there, right? When you go into Jerusalem, that land is still occupied. The southernmost hill in Jerusalem is called Mount Zion. Over time, Zion became synonymous with Jerusalem. You refer to them in the same way. You'd go, oh, I, where do you live? I live over in Zion. Same idea. When it would talk poetically about things, you would say Zion and everyone would go, oh, Jerusalem. I get it. So he's standing there in between the two testaments, Old Testament, New Testament. There was a ton of writing done. In a book called Second Esdras, it lays out when the Messiah comes back, he's going to stand right on Mount Zion. He's going to literally set up shop there. And all the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to set up shop in Jerusalem. What was interesting is, I didn't realize how 
clear this picture in Revelation that we just read about him standing on that mountain and taking authority? I didn't realize how clear it was in the Old Testament. Would you keep your finger in Revelation and turn with me to Psalm 2? Now, Psalms is basically a book in the middle of your Bible, slightly to the left. So drop it open in the middle and go left, right? Psalms, a really big book. It's kind of hard to miss. But we're looking for Psalm chapter 2. It's page 384. And the Bible's handed to you. Psalm chapter 2. I'll turn there with you as I read it here. Psalm chapter 2. Now, I understand that it seems really obvious to us now that we've seen everything go down, but to a Jew, it might be a little confusing. But in our day and age, after seeing what Jesus did, wow, is this clear. Psalm chapter 2, think of it as almost a parallel text with what we just read. It says this, why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? Almost like, why is the Antichrist even bothering to try to fight against God? That's just stupid. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against Yahweh and against his anointed one. All right. Anointed one is the word for Messiah. Okay. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters, meaning let's rebel against the authority of God. The one enthroned, meaning God, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the degree, the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. That was directly attributed to Jesus Christ. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up at a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, turn back. Does it not sound like we're talking about the exact same thing? John says, then I looked and there before me was a lamb, Jesus Christ, standing on Mount Zion victoriously. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. Now, immediately you got to go. That's God's stuff. I think God's talking. Well, hold on. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. All right. This is where we get a lot of the little harp imagery. Okay. Oh, we're all going to have a little harp and go ding, ding, ding on our little clouds. Okay. That's not what it said. It said it was melodic. It was this powerful sound as if thousands upon thousands of harpists were playing at the same time. In other words, there was this huge, powerful, beautiful song emanating from heaven that John heard. And he said, and they sang a new song before the throne. Who? The 144,000. And before the four living creatures and the elders, they're in the throne room of God singing a song. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Why do they get to sing it? I want to sing it. How come I don't get to know the song? Now I'm starting to feel ripped off, right? 
They, there was a new song sang in chapter 5, verse 9. They had a new song about how great Jesus was. Now there's another new song, and this new song is only known by the 144,000. Why? Why doesn't everybody get to sing it? Because not everybody's been through what they've been through. Whenever you go through an experience with Jesus Christ, you get a new song. And if nobody's been through that, they don't know the song. The song may have been something like this. I had all my hopes and dreams dashed when I lost my child. And for years, I felt alone. But then my God came and restored the joy of my salvation. That is my song. Some of you can sing that song. The majority cannot. There is songs such as, I had hoped that our family would always be together. But our family is not together. And I have sought God's face every day. And I wonder about the future. And God has given me an assurance that no matter what happens, I will be okay. That's your song, right? No one else can sing that song. Let me ask you a question, a challenge. Make it real practical. When's the last time you sang a new song? You still singing songs from college? 34 years ago? Right? He's still singing, oh, I remember this one time when God was doing this awesome stuff and we were just moving. And I remember I witnessed to this one guy and then there was this awesome. When is the last time you sang a new song? Was it yesterday? The psalmist, David, seemed to suggest that every time he gets up in the morning, he has a new song to sing. Because God did something yesterday. Has God not done enough for you to sing a song? Do you understand that we all have an individual song, one long song called our testimony, that we only know. Nobody else knows a song but us. And we can sing that to the Lord. But my point is, is in your heart, are you singing any songs? Is there praise emitting out to God because you're going through stuff with Him? Do you know Him differently because of what has just occurred in your life? Do you see Him in a new way? Do you have insight into your God that I do not have because you walked there and I didn't? Do you have a song that's just your own? Of course you do. Do you recognize it as a song? Are you singing that song? Hear the 144,000 sing a song. Do you understand that over and over and over, whenever things are about to get bad, Revelation pauses and has a worship service and goes, you do know God's good, right? You do know God loves you, right? Because you're about to see a cage match and it's about to get ugly and you might make some mistakes. So let me reiterate, he's good, he's loving, he's kind, praise God. Okay, now let's get into the ferocity, right? He, it keeps doing that. This is a pause with a worship service. Now, who are these 144,000? Well, it begins to describe their character, and it's something we have to look at. It says this, These are those, verse 4, who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. What in the world does that mean? Did you look at it? Did you look at it closely? Here's what it says. Here's what it means. You ready? Women are evil. No, it's, <laughs> no it doesn't really say that. I just wanted to see if you're awake. Okay. 
What's it, what does it mean? Right? What's it? Those who didn't defile themselves with women, kept themselves pure. What are we talking about? Well, this has really been mistaken throughout history to a really extreme degree. This whole idea of being celibate. Oh, maybe sex is a bad thing. Maybe we don't get involved in that, even in marriage. So let's avoid the marriage thing. Let's keep honorable before God. And people began to take it to the extreme. Every once in a while, you'll hear me quote some of the early church fathers. And when I say early church fathers, I'm talking about going way back to the first, second, third century, right after the whole disciples hand off to the next guys. And there was a famous guy that was very influential by the name of Origen, he bought so much into this concept that he castrated himself. So people take it pretty extreme. You understand that in the Catholic Church, there's still a large movement to have the priest be celibate. Why? To be wholly devoted to the Lord. Do they have good reason for coming up with concepts like that? Sure they do. Let me ask you this. Name for me the two most powerful evangelists and influential people in the New Testament. I bet you get one really fast. Jesus. Okay. All right. Jesus is the first one. And Paul. Which one was married? Oh, that's right. Neither one of them. Okay. So you have the two most powerful male figures in the New Testament. Neither one of them were married. And you've read some of Paul's talking on that going, listen, marriage is a spiritual liability in many ways. You need to understand that. We need to be wholly sold out to God. Well, that's why monks and nuns do the stuff they do. I get it. And let me take this moment to just do an encouragement on a core of our church. Those of you that are single, I need you to understand that you are in a marvelous place, that you are in a gifted place, that you can do things other people cannot do. Your window of opportunity may be very short, You may well get married soon, and that would end that opportunity. Please do not waste it. I wasted my single time. I was so concerned about getting married. I was so focused and driven on the relational aspect with women that it began to cloud what I was doing. I could not rest. I could not relax. I could not be peaceful. And what a waste. I wasn't single for very long. I'm married for a real long time. (laughs) If you are single and the Lord has selected that you would be single for the rest of your life, you are still in a place of power and usefulness to God. You are not second class. You are no lower than anyone else. You are just as powerful in the kingdom of God. And I want you to understand that we stand on equal measure. And in many ways, there is a gift that goes along with that of opportunity. But is that what it's talking about in this context? Is it saying that these men are sexual virgins? Because really, that's the Greek way of saying it. It actually says these guys are virgins. That's weird. Almost always when the Bible talks about virgins, it's tied to women. It's not the way you would describe the males. But now it says that they are virgins. What does it mean? We got a couple options, right? Either, number one, they're literal sexual virgins in honor to God, meaning unmarried men, just like the warriors in the Old Testament who would abstain from sex during battle times. 
there was this command. David talked about it. He and his men, they would abstain when they were on the warpath. And the idea was, I'm going to be 100% devoted to God. I'm not going to get involved in that. Now, is that what it means? Well, we have a couple problems with that. Number one, the more study you do about the 144,000, you're going to realize that it's probably a mixed group of men and women. So that kind of ruins it. It's not all guys. So that kind of takes out that sexual element to it. Uh, not only that, but the Bible talks about sex and marriage as being good, healthy, right, and whole. So I'm not so sure that's what it's referring to. Possible. All the early church fathers seem to think so, but I don't think so. People have even gone so far as to say it's possible that a scribe, a monk, put that part in there to go, well, of course, these are the kind of guys that God uses. That's why I'm staying celibate and added it in and it got put in. There's no argument for that. That's all speculation. Or we have option number two, which is what? He's talking spiritually. Well, does God ever mix spirituality and sexuality in discussion? Yeah, he does all the time. What do I mean? Idolatry is just like unfaithfulness. Remember? God speaks of being married to the believer. And if you put something higher than him in higher priority, if you do anything with another God, you are cheating on him. As a matter of fact, we're about to read here in about two seconds that there is a great prostitute that's luring all the nations in, trying to get them hammered to do things her way. And he's using all that to describe idolatry, to use that to describe people walking away from God. He uses the terms of adultery, unfaithfulness, fornication. He uses all those in descriptions of spiritual matters. So I would suggest to you the way that I fall on this argument is I would suggest that it's spiritual. These guys have not bowed. These women have not bowed to the Antichrist and his kingdom. They have remained 100% pure, true, and right to God. It says, These are those who do not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Do you got a better definition of Christianity than that? That's pretty simple, yeah? I mean, that's it. What do we do as a Christian? We follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's all. We do what he does. We're mimics. That's our job. They were purchased from among men, meaning they were ransomed, bought back from among men, taken out of mankind and set apart and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. What are first fruits? It's an Old Testament concept. It's about tithing. In the ancient world, tithing was done in an agricultural world. You would bring in your offerings to the Lord, a tenth. You would take the first and best of your harvest as a symbol of all of your harvest. You'd bring in the best, take it to the temple, and set it down before the priest. And say, God, this is my gift to you because I know you own it all. In the same way, these 144,000 who have gotten beat up and messed with and all these different things down in the world, they were a sampling, the best of what was to come. I believe that that remnant of Israel is indicative of this huge group, a revival that leads through Israel. They were the first fruits that were laid before the king. What else about them? It says... No lie was found in their mouths. What does that mean? Does it mean they were never told a lie? No. This is a Jesus phrase. 
When it describes Jesus, it says, and no lie was found in his mouth. There's a very biblical concept of saying he was honest, upright, truthful. That's the idea. Now, of course, Jesus didn't tell a lie, but these are still human beings, in my opinion. No lie was found in their mouth. They were straightforward and bold with the gospel. They did not step off of it. They were true. And then what does the next phrase say? They are blameless. Does that mean they never sinned? There is nobody on earth that never sinned. Only Jesus. So no, it doesn't mean that. What does it mean? It's the same word in the Old Testament for what? An offering being fit to be offered. You all remember the story about how you would bring these animals to be offered, but they would be examined first? Only when the sheep was spotless and clean of blemish could he be used. That's the word. Fit as an offering. This crew was not perfect, but boy, were they fit for a glorious offering. Pretty amazing. Then it switches and it gives us three previews. One by one, angels fly through and give you a preview of about of what is to come saying real quick heads up. We just had a worship service. Remember God is good. Yeah, because now things are about to collide. So let me give you a picture lest you ever go. Oh my gosh, the enemy's super scary. I think I should bow to him. Let me tell you what is about to happen. We get three previews. First one starts in verse six. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel. That is the good news. To proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Why is that important? Because last week we studied that the beast and the false prophet deceived every nation, tribe, language, and people. It's the same words. In other words, wherever the beast went to deceive, God countermoved. And he said, and the gospel will be to them as well. You think I'm going to let my people just suffer with no opportunity? Not a chance. I will sweep in and I will hit every territory. Oh, they will hear of me. They will know me. And then they have some very serious decisions to make. It says, he said in a loud voice, meaning the angel, fear God. And some of us need to learn what that means. We must fear God rightfully, not wrong, not, oh my gosh, he's so scary. I don't even know him. I don't want to know him. That's not fearing God rightly. Fearing God rightly means realize how massive and powerful he is and understand your relation to that. It's not a panicky fear. It's a respect fear in a healthy way. Fear God. Then what? Give him glory. In other words, it's do him. He's done so many amazing things. It's worth it. He's worth it. Give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him, it commands, who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Okay, let me explain this. A lot of our worship is emotional pouring out of absolute ease and adoration of God. You are just so awesome. So much of our worship is good in the sense that it just bubbles over with God and we feel awesome about the Lord and we're able to sing a song about it. But some elements of worship are just sacrifice because he's worth it. You come into church, you got nothing. Man, Lord, I'm just beat down. I don't got it. I don't feel like it. I'm not tracking with you. But you are worthy. So I will make an offering. And I will sing it to you because you are worthy of glory. 
Do you understand those balance that needs to occur within worship? Some of it is sacrificial. Some of it is just exuberance. Both are great in the sight of God. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Who or what is that? It's quotes from Isaiah 21.9 and Daniel 4.30. All right, does that help? Not really. What's Babylon? Everybody remember the famous story in Genesis of the Tower of Babel? Remember that story? All mankind was told to scatter throughout the earth and fill the earth. They didn't want to do that. That was uncomfortable. Nobody wants to do the uncomfortable thing. So they all herded together. They began to build this enormous building as kind of a, we don't need you, God. We can do everything ourselves. Isn't man awesome? Right? That was their building. God got irritated, came down, confused their languages so they couldn't talk to each other, and they spread out over the world like they were supposed to. That's the story. On that place of the Tower of Babel was founded the city of Babylon. Okay? Babylon, very ancient. It's in, we know, modern day, Iraq. As a matter of fact, they found the archaeological remains. It was a city throughout all of ancient history. It became massive and mighty. It was known for luxury, overindulgence, sin, idolatry. It was the nastiest sin city in all the world. So everybody, as they would come through, they would always talk about Babylon as, ooh, you know that kind of place. Well, then the prophets start using it as a synonym for a bunch of different cities. Whenever a city would rise up and stand against God, the prophet would call him Babylon. And it became this kind of word or a motif that they would use. In the same way, you now see, just like Daniel used it, it says, fallen is Babylon the great. But what are we talking about? you got a couple choices. Either that literal city in Iraq is going to be rebuilt. Now, we all know that Saddam Hussein was rebuilding it, right? We know that that was... Now, he's gone. Okay, well, will somebody else come and take it over and literally rebuild the city and restore it to its former glory? Will that happen? If so, it's very possible that the Antichrist would set up his kingdom largely in the area of Babylon or what have you and begin to rule from there. That's a possibility. Or is it being used much more symbolically with saying whatever the Antichrist kingdom is, it is represented by Babylon. We know it to be a great city. Some people even take it to say, if Jesus came back now, it must be one of the most influential cities in the world. And some people believe it to be in America. Now, I think that if Jesus tarries, America is not going to be a big deal in the world scene for very long. And so we're going to kind of get edged out. That's my personal opinion. And I think that the Middle East ends up becoming more and more important as we move forward into the future. But if it did happen now, I understand why they view it that way. So a lot of people ended up calling it New York City. You'll see that a lot in literature. Is it true? I don't know. All we know is that it's the bad guy's place and it's fallen. He tells you right off the bat, lest anyone buy into this, oh, the devil's getting bigger and badder and it's working and oh my gosh. No, he goes, it's fallen. And you go, well, you can't say it's fallen. It's not fallen yet. Okay, have you ever said this phrase or heard little kids go, you're dead? Well, literally, they're not dead. That's why you're talking to them. 
Okay, but it's so sure that you talk about it as if it's past. Same thing. Fallen is Babylon the Great. Let me tell you how this whole thing ends. Bad guy, city goes down. There you go. Fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. They lured in the world to idolatry. You want a piece of this? You want something that I have? You want a little bit of this? What are you willing to sell for it? You willing to compromise? You willing to go out on a limb? What are you willing to do? Because I can get you anything you need. And it's this picture of a prostitute. It's a very common Old Testament picture of a prostitute standing out on the street luring a guy. Getting him drunk, getting him hammered, so he no longer can say no, and he falls prey to what she wants, and she gets her money from him. Just because the guy got hammered and was not able to say no, does that mean he's no longer held accountable? Oh, he's held accountable. But so is the one that lured. Then it says, by the way, that's fulfilled in Revelation chapter 18. Then in verse 9, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, that's all that we talked about last week, remember? Antichrist, false prophet sets up an image and then institutes the mark of the beast, 666. If you receive that, the angel says, He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Here's the picture. A king sitting on his throne. He has a chalice in his hand. In there, symbolically, are stirring around all the wrath of his kingdom to attack another kingdom. And he's ready to pour it out and cover the whole world. God is about to pour out. And indeed, as we move forward in these chapters of Revelation, God's final judgment on the world is shown to be seven what? Bowls poured out over the earth. Seven bowls of wrath poured out over the earth. It says, He will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath, and He will be tormented with burning sulfur. What do we know that as? Fire and brimstone. You're supposed to immediately, if you're a Jew, think back to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These wicked, idolatrous cities that God said, good people, get out, get out now. And he rained down fire and brimstone and burned the city to the ground. He said, you will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Wow. Does it get any more clear and hardcore than that? He just said, choose this day whom you will serve. Don't you dare bow down. If you join the enemy's team, you will join in the enemy's wrath that he will receive. If you choose to adhere your loyalties and allegiances to Satan, the enemy, the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, the mark, then you will be standing in the way of my wrath and you will receive my wrath completely. You will be tormented forever and ever. Jesus, this is one thing I love about Christianity. It lays it all out there. It's no manipulation, no, oh, I thought this, no bait and switch, nothing. Just lays it out there. Hey, real quick, you're going to burn in hell forever. Everybody got that one? All right. I mean, it's just so obvious. 
And then Jesus goes, you want to follow me? It's going to be rough. Everyone's going to hate your guts. Every time he would just lay it out there. And that's how I've always appreciated when people would talk to me. I hate being manipulated. Just tell me what the truth is. So he lays it out. If you join the other team, I will take you down. And you will burn forever. Does everybody understand that we are eternal beings? Are we all clear on that part? That everyone's going to live forever? It just depends on where you're going to live forever? Now, there's a lot of you that are enlightened and brilliant and realize that there's a concept known as the annihilation theory, which is good guys go to heaven, bad guys go poof. That ain't biblical. There's nothing in the Bible that supports you on that one. Sorry. So you may think that. I'm just going to tell you, Bible don't think that. (laughs) Bible says over and over and over, forever and ever. That's a long time. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. We're going to get caught in the crunch when two kingdoms collide and we're in the middle of an octagon during a cage fight. What do we do? You better know what side you're on. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die from the Lord from now on, who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, said the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. What does that mean? It's one thing to go to heaven merely by the grace of God and by the skin of your teeth, right? Oh, I just got in. I was right in the middle of sinning when Jesus returned, right? We all know what I'm talking about? Okay. Then there's a way to go, I gave my whole life up for Jesus and I died for him. And when I go to the Lord, I can at least hold my head up a little bit and go, I gave you all my Lord. That's a different way to walk in. That's what these guys get that die from this point forward. Because it's so brutal. It's so hard. But they stand true. They stand strong. All right. So what do we take from this lesson? I got two things for you. As we close, number one, embrace the security of God. Our God is so mighty and so powerful that if you are in his arms, you are 100% safe of all that matters. He has you shielded. He is a ferocious protector. He is your provider. He is your fortress. He is everything you need and more. And no one can touch you. God has you secure. God, the mighty warrior of all the universe, is protecting you. Let the enemy fear. Number one, take security in the arms of God. When you see him in Revelation get scary, you take that as encouragement because that's your bodyguard. When you see him get violent, You look and realize that's going against the enemy. That's not for you. Number one, take security in the arms of God. Number two, be very clear on what side you're on. Are you on God's side? Or are you on Satan's side? This is where everybody's subconscious pops up and says, Actually, I'm not on either. I'm on my side. Ready for a reality check? The pie was divided in half. There is no slice for your side. You're either on the left side or on the right side. 
you don't have another choice. Your side is Satan's side, and that's not good. Choose this day whom you will serve. Now, here's what we're going to do practically. I'm going to have two groups of people stand up in a moment, and I'll tell you when. First group, if you are a child of God, and you know you're a child of God, but you've been walking away in allegiance to God recently, or for so long that you can't even remember how to get home, you lost the map and you don't even know where you are anymore. You realize that you spend the vast majority of your time helping the enemy out, even though you're a believer. If you are a Christian and know that you want to recommit your allegiance to God today to reconvince yourself, God knows. It's not like you're telling him anything new. This is for you. Where you stand to resolute your spirit and make the commitment to yourself. No, I stand for God. When I'm thinking clear, I know exactly what side I want to be on. I get confused sometimes. I run away sometimes. I'm rebellious sometimes. But I know what side I want to be on and I want to stand. That group I want to stand. Second group. You're brand new to this whole thing and you're like, oh shoot, there's sides? Dang it. And you're kind of caught in the crossfire. All right. I'm going to ask you what side you want to be on. You don't know everything about God. You don't know everything about the enemy. But from what you understand and what you know, is it today that you want to take a stand for Jesus Christ? Maybe you've heard enough. Maybe today's the day of decision. I'm going to have you stand along with them. All right. So let me make it all clear. If you know where you stand with God, it's super clear to you. You're comfortable. You're peaceful. You're walking great with God. Everything's good. I don't want you to stand. You don't have to feel guilty about it. Just sit down. It's no big deal. But if you want to stand for Jesus Christ for those other two reasons, I want you to stand up right now. Right now. We're not going to close our eyes. We want to, you're going to stand up. Now, I'm going to pray for those that are standing. Now, if you're not standing, I think that's awesome. Just understand, I'm not praying for you. I'm praying for those that are standing up, all right? Because things are cool with you. For those of you that stand up, I need all of us to pray. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, we stand in our allegiance to you. That, Lord, I know that things have been on shaky ground, that we have not been where we need to be. I understand, Lord, that we have in many ways aided and abetted the enemy. I know that, Lord, we have gotten confused, we have lost our way, we have spent too much time away from you, and we want to recommit. Now that we're clear, now that we know, with all of our will, we tell you, Lord, we are on your side 100%. We know that you are God. We know that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That you are our all. We commit ourselves to you afresh. Lord, for those of us that are brand new to this, and all we know is that you're the good guy. We commit ourselves to you. We put ourselves in your camp. We give our allegiance and loyalty to you. Oh, Lord, show us what you're like that we might fall in love with you. But, Lord, we stand as a testimony. May all the angels see. May all the saints see. 
that despite the pressures of this world, despite the confusion of the enemy, those of us that sit, those of us that stand, are for you. May we be a light on a hill, and any that are hurting and suffering may come to us to say, please tell me the way home and the way to safety, and we would. Oh God, we give you praise. We stand in your glory because you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can I have the rest of you, please?